So welcome to week five of A.J. Levine's Entering the Passion of Jesus, a Beginner's Guide to Holy Week. As I've said before, the premise of Levine's book is that every great story has both history and risk. The history is what grounds us in the story, what helps us experience the world more fully as it would have been during Jesus' last week on earth. The risk alerts us to the potential for something important to be gained, but also something critical to be lost. Several months ago, when I chose this study for Lent, I didn't know how impactful it would be for me to spend all these 40 days in Holy I didn't know how profoundly I, and we all, would be reminded of the fragility of human life. I didn't know that the whole world would feel like it's turning upside down. There have been times these last several weeks, this, this week most especially, that I've wanted to avoid the story, avoid the pain, and avoid the fear. Friends, we know what's coming in the life of Jesus. We do not know what's coming in our own lives. The most mundane of things suddenly feels hugely risky, from selecting groceries to picking up mail. And for the first time in many of our lives, we know what it's like to live in solidarity with those in other parts of the world for whom our current pain is commonplace life. From food shortages to mass loss of life from disease, we are living differently today. Even so, most of us are fortunate that these things are touching us only on the periphery of our lives. This is not the case for the disciples, of course, and certainly not true for Jesus, who is mere hours away from being handed over to the authorities. Our story begins on the first night of Passover, at least in the Gnostic Gospels. On the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. Passover is a time of remembrance for Jewish people, a time to celebrate liberation from slavery. Jewish people gather with friends and family to retell the story. They eat special foods, including unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and green vegetables dipped in salt water to remember the flight from Egypt, the bitterness of slavery, and the tears of the slaves. A few parts of the current and modern Passover meal are the same as they were in Jesus' day, including the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, but most were developed after the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. Therefore, the Seder Jewish people celebrate today is significantly different from what Jesus and his disciples would have experienced on this last night together. At the time of Jesus, other Passover traditions were observed that are not and cannot be observed now. For example, part of the meal would have been to eat the Paschal lamb, the lamb that had been sacrificed in the temple earlier that day. If you recall, in the temple system, sacrifice was a way of sharing a meal with God. It served as a means of binding families and communities together in the sight of the holy. There are several kinds of offerings in the Hebrew scriptures. Thanksgiving offerings, free will offerings, 
dedicatory offerings, festival offerings, and sin offerings. One could bring oil, grain, or other produce, or animals for these offerings. But this sacrifice was one particularly of a lamb. Levine writes, Unless a sacrifice is called a whole burnt offering, the worshiper would give this animal to the priest, and the priest would butcher it, drain the blood, burn parts of the offering on the altar, and give the other parts back to the worshiper. In eating the meal, then, the worshiper would symbolically share a meal with God. And so the meal begins. The writer of the Gospel of Matthew says, When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed and began to say to him, one after another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. The Greek word that the NRSV translates betray is paradidomai. It literally means to hand over. Judas is the one who hands Jesus over in all four Gospels, but his role is different in each story. Again, this shouldn't upset us so much as it should force us to pay attention to each Gospel account. Levine writes, Rather than debate the historicity of Judas, we would do well to look at these individual stories because here we can enter more deeply into the heart of the passion narrative. In Matthew's account, and only here, Judas has a motive for his betrayal. Greed. In Matthew 26.15, Judas asks the high priest, What will you give me if I betray him to you? Only Matthew has him receiving these 30 pieces of silver. Yet things don't end well for Judas. In the next chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Judas throws the silver back into the temple and then hangs himself. This is an act of a desperate person, a person who believes he has failed his family and friends and cannot live with the guilt of his actions. Yet Judas had been with Jesus for years, had heard firsthand of the love of God. He must have still thought there was no hope for him. And how much like us is that, friends? We've all been betrayed, and we have all betrayed others. But in all four Gospels, the betrayer sits at the table. He hears Jesus say that this bread and wine represent his body and blood. Levine writes, Judas, too, is made in the image and likeness of the divine. We cannot afford to demonize human beings. Judas calls us to conscience. Sometime during the meal, the text goes on. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Before there was the church, there was the table. <laughs>
At this Passover table, Jesus takes the bread and offers it to his friends. He says, take, eat, this is my body. Then he takes the cup, gives thanks, and says, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Sacrificial imagery is challenging for us because we are 2,000 years removed from a religious system in which sacrificial offering is practiced. And as I said earlier, sacrifice was a means of sharing a meal with God. We should be shocked when Jesus says we are to eat his flesh and drink his blood, for both were and are forbidden in Judaism. Jesus is giving up his life. He knows what's coming for him, and he wants to be remembered. It's a real risk and a real choice for Jesus. Levine writes, participation in this meal, that is our our common meal, our Eucharist, is a joy, a blessing, a sign of abundant life, and a risk. The invitation to the table should come with a warning label. Am I reconciled to others in my world? If I am not, dare I approach? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells those who are not reconciled to their siblings to leave their gifts at the altar and reconcile before returning to make their offering. Jesus says to his friends, do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, I'm giving up my life. That requires a response. So how might we respond to that call? In Luke and John, Jesus washes the disciples' feet in that last supper narrative. This foot washing is a one-time event, but it's not meant to to be a one-time event in our lives. Its meaning should permeate our lives. Famously, Peter tells Jesus he will never wash Peter's feet. And Jesus replies, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. For while we are to be servants of all, we are also called to receive hospitably. Jesus was a servant of all, healing and ministering and washing feet. But he received ministry from others, like in last week's story of the woman who anointed his head. Whether we are on the giving or the receiving end of ministry, service is up close and personal. It means doing something that is meaningful to and for another. It means manifesting the life of God, which is found in weakness and humility. Levine writes, To be a servant leader means to take on the role of freeing others not only from sin, but also from bondage. If we come to Christ's table, we eat of the bread of life and drink of the cup of blessing. Yet, for us too, sharing in the Lord's Supper is a real risk and a real choice. We risk giving up personal authority so that we may serve others, so that we may free others. These days, the ways we have known how to serve how to be the church are changing. We have served in the Tomek Food Pantry and the Backpack Buddies program at TDC and so many other ways. Certainly, and currently, we are serving by sheltering in place. Certainly, we are experiencing more of the weight of Lent than any of us has ever experienced in our lifetimes. Not so arrogant as to try to make meaning of this pandemic. Rather, I am reminded that, like the stories of the Passion narrative, 
We are in a time where we must know our history and recognize the risk. I am reminded of my foundational belief. God is always already with us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. But I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I've said this to you, so that you may have peace. In the world you will face persecution, but take courage. I have overcome the world. The one who was betrayed invites us to participate in his life and death as we look forward to resurrection. The one who was and is and is to come invites us to the table. The one who has overcome the world is with us, beloveds, always. Will you accept the invitation to commune with the holy, to walk in love, to forgive those who have betrayed us? It's a real risk. It's a real risk.